The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. Later in the podcast, I talk to Christopher Spencer, the man behind the satirical images that have taken Twitter by storm over the past couple of years under the name Cold War Steve, capturing perhaps more acutely than anyone else the madness of Britain in the Brexit era. But first this week, there's no doubt what the big cultural story is, the fire at Notre Dame in Paris, which united many of us in despair at what appeared at one stage to be the destruction of one of the world's greatest monuments to human civilization. It turns out, of course, that much of the building was mercifully saved. Jonathan Foyle is an architectural historian, writer and broadcaster who's a former curator of historic buildings at the Historic Royal Palaces in the UK and has written books on England's greatest Gothic buildings, including the cathedrals in Canterbury and Lincoln. Jonathan joins me on the line now. Jonathan, we were all in varying states of despair on on Monday night. It seems like it's not as bad as we at least at one point were fearing. Is that your assessment? Well, of course, the first impression is one of utter chaos and destruction and and despair. And of course, you can't predict the outcome uh, with with a fire that big and that fierce. Um, one tends to uh, anticipate the worst. Um, With a large building like that, it's a very complex picture. We can look back on other examples of major buildings that suffered fires like Windsor Castle in 1993. And of course, we're at the other end of that and we can see the silver lining of archaeology. We can see um, new design and a new chapter of life at Windsor. But at the point of damage, uh, to what extent it is, a wound or whether it uh, creates the entire collapse of the building. Of course, you, you cannot anticipate that. And frankly, it's still too early to say what the extent of the damage is. I mean, we tend to think that the next morning when the smoke clears, we're all the wiser. But in fact, that's when the analysis starts to begin. Indeed. So what do we know at this point? What, what, what damage are we certain has been done? Okay, well, it's um, a gain of two halves with great buildings like this. We've seen numerous cathedral fires in the 20th century through war. Uh, The roof, for example, of Reims Cathedral was lost during the First World War. So we have seen the complete loss of vaults coming crashing down into churches whose walls still stand and the reconstruction of vaults and the refurnishing of those churches um, is part of the story of the 20th century. We've seen, for example, utter destruction at places like Coventry, where a new building has replaced the shell. Now, in this case, what we're looking at with Gothic buildings is something quite new, because this is not bombing um, and artillery fire, as we've seen in the 20th century. It is a fire on the roof, which... um, uh, is a forest of timber. I mean, the French, of course, call that roof the forest. And when limestone reaches temperatures of something above 900 Celsius, it starts to calcinate. This is where the complications come in, because the damage isn't immediately obvious. The calcination is the chemical change of limestone, that it begins to change to a kind of powder, um, basically the constituent of mortar. Um, Now, there's another issue, and that is the intense heat on a vault which seems to be the saviour of this of this thing. It seems to have protected much of the interior uh, of, the, of, of Notre Dame. Well, actually, when you subject uh, a vault like that to intense heat and then pump thousands of gallons of cold water on it, 
you can end up with a lot of heat fracture. And of course, then there's a long cooling down process from such a temperature. It takes several days to cool down. And it's in that time that one shouldn't be surprised to find further vault collapses. And in fact, that's what happened when the fire was out, still smoldering. That's when the crossing uh, vault seemed to fall in. And of course, we know that there there are other holes um, where the vault web has collapsed. It may not be the end of it because the process of the building cooling down, settling again and um, trying to rebalance those stresses is an ongoing issue. And in particular, that's the case with these giant Gothic buildings, because they are, in engineering terms, um, they're a network of kept in equilibrium. The cage-like structure is supposed to hold together because the weight of those vaults pushing outwards is countered by the flying buttresses pushing the weight in to create an equilibrium of forces. Now, when you take away half of the weight, then the other half wants to push in into the void. And that's no doubt uh, part of the equation that structural engineers uh, are having to uh, wrestle with what is the effect for the first time ever of the loss of weight from those vault webs having disappeared? What does that do to the forces on the outside of the building pushing in? So what I'm saying is, um, yes, we've seen destruction before, but the destruction hasn't ended yet, not until the building has settled down and until uh, structurally in engineering terms it's stabilised. Obviously, like any very old building, Notre Dame has been through a tremendous amount of rupture over the years. Can you give us a sort of a brief-ish timeline of of what's happened with this cathedral? Okay, so um, Paris was a Roman city and building on an island was the uh, natural thing to do. The topography and the beauty of situation of Notre Dame is a result of um, good judgment on the part of the Romans, ultimately. And what came out of that Roman city was quite a large church um, called um, Santa Steph, St. Stephen, which was built um, half outside the west front of Notre Dame and half of it remains inside. So that's a an early medieval basilican type church. It was uh, one of the proto-martyrs, St. Stephen. Um, and it was quite a popular church um, for several hundred years. However, there was, by the 7th century, a church of um, Notre Dame, a smaller one, more or less in line with Santa Steph, which is uh, under the main altar of Notre Dame. Now, it's interesting how often great churches perpetuate the sites of previous focuses of worship. And um, you can take that back to, for example, Wells Cathedral being situated on a well. You know, there's so many cases in which that happens. There's perpetuation of an important site of worship. So this small church of Notre Dame, and it's quite frequent, actually, that churches were dedicated to the Virgin Mary in those early centuries. There was something of a growing cult of St. Mary, though, which came um, both in France and England in the years around 1100. And so for St. Stephen to be demolished and the bishop Maurice de Sully to start after 10, 1160 rather, to begin a church to uh, Notre Dame, Our Lady, is part of the cult of the Virgin which saw lady chapels develop in England. Already by that time, the Cistercian order had dedicated every one of their churches to the Virgin Mary. And there were very many ways in which the Virgin could be interpreted, largely because she wasn't featured um, remotely heavily in the Bible. 
um, the Gospels overlook Mary. And so later, post-biblical legend fills the picture with quite a lot of projection and, um, you know, and legend. And so, of course, any image of Mary, she'd never lose a beauty contest. She never gets past her 20s. I mean, she's an idealized <laughs> woman. And as the perpetual virgin, lots of characteristics uh, architecturally become conflated with her identity. One of them, for example, is polished marble columns are seen to be the burden that the bride bears. She, um, her womb was impenetrable except to God. And so she was seen as... Um, a metaphor for Mary was glazing windows. And so you find a lot of the churches of the Virgin are those that pioneer larger windows, um, um, which is quite an interesting relationship between the two things. So light passes through glass. The glass remains incorrupted. It is the light of the Holy Spirit entering the church as the as the dove of the Holy Spirit entered Mary's womb. Um, Mary, as queen of paradise, becomes associated with the queen of heaven, where she sits within a fortified garden wall in a perennial spring. And you start to see lots of imagery of uh, plant forms which speak about this well notre dame is swept up in that cult of the virgin so in 1163 that's really in uh, full swing and um she is the omni saint she's the, she's everyone's um mother in heaven and 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 will always you know win a prize for uh, in best saint competition um, in England, we have Walsingham, for example, uh, but a, a curious number of churches like Salisbury and Lincoln, uh, Worcester are dedicated to the Virgin um, in England. So Notre Dame raise, is raised on the central island um, in, in, in Paris, uh, the Ile de Paris. Uh, to the north is the defensible area, lots of Castella building before it's swept away in the age of reason. Uh, to the south is the university. At this point, um, really coming into its own as the predominant European university where most of the great churchmen are schooled. And that university uh, does pioneering things like um, translates uh, copies of Euclid, which are now being gathered after the um, opening up of the Mediterranean, the Crusades, the rest of it, the interest in classical and Greek texts, especially actually from uh, Arabic libraries. And the University of Paris, that area, does things like uh, translates Euclid, and therefore we now have a clearer understanding of ancient Greek geometry. And it's not much of a step to imagine the consequence of that expansion of knowledge into a three-dimensional geometric approach to architecture. So the conflation of Parisian learning and the cult of the Virgin creates the first giant amongst Gothic cathedrals on this site at the time when Paris is entering its golden age. Um, from the late 12th into the 13th century, it burgeons really into the premier city of Europe. Rome is tiny by this point. Um, and uh, and Paris is, is where it's at. So this island is half owned by the king and the palace is at the uh, west end and the east end is the bishop uh, Maurice de Sully who is building Notre Dame um, really consolidating all those experiments in gothic structure to create really a crucible of gothic design that um, was the blueprint for the perfect expressions in places like Bourges after 1195 and into the 13th century. So I mean, it's not the very first Gothic cathedral, but it is nonetheless an enormously influential Gothic cathedral in France. 
it is enormously influential and it picked up on um, experiments in the area around Paris. So Saint-Martin-des-Champs, for example, in the 1120s was trying to uh, replace wall with glass through many conjoined chapels. That's done at a low level where it's structurally quite safe. Um, and there are some interesting uh, um, examples in and around um, the classic, the exemplar being um, Saint-Denis, I mean, that didn't come from nowhere, as its patron, Abbot Suger, north of Paris, would like to believe. But he's one of those people who essentially supported uh, the king, gave the king um, the authority of God uh, and sent the German armies packing. And Abbot Suger was um, uh, delighted by the metaphysics of light. Um, um, his church was dedicated to Saint-Denis, the early Parisian martyr, and who became the patron saint of France. Um, the patron saint of Paris, by the way, was Saint Genevieve, but that shows you how you know the, the Virgin played her, her trump card over the patron saint of Paris. Right, yeah. um, but these experiments, places like Saint Denis, um, this was a curious conflation. We tend to think of the Gothic as an expression of modernity and of a pure kind of architecture. Um, there are characteristics of it. We think of pointed arches. We look at um, stone vaults. Uh, we think of flying buttresses trying to reconcile all those forces. But there are other issues at play. And one of them is the idea that authority comes from antiquity. We never escaped that in the Middle Ages. It wasn't a total game of modernity. And at places like Saint-Denis, Abbot Suger was interested in dredging the Tiber to get hold of marble columns from Rome to come and basically create this as a new kind of Rome. Augustine's City of God might come to mind with the authority mm -hmm. uh, that, that he was drawing on. Um, so you have Gothic cathedrals built on what look like classical columns. And Notre Dame in the 18th century, when uh, classicism was really bound by its own rules, um, drew the ire and sometimes disgust of classicists who said, well, look what's happened. Someone's put some monstrous columns underneath, which are totally squat and the wrong kind of support for these soaring ribs that shoot off to 115 feet in height. It's because Notre Dame knew it was on an ancient site, is looking for the language of Roman authority. So it's a kind of basilica. But that basilica, with the theology that they'd embraced, became the new Jerusalem on earth. And so that numinous quality of stained glass, biblical messages, the sense that you walk in through the doors and it's the last judgment in the middle of Notre Dame's West Portal. It's that which takes you into something quite removed from the old fashioned um, timber roofed uh, and ironically fire prone buildings with thick walls that these Parisians with their command of engineering and geometry and theology wanted to escape from and frankly reach to the heavens. And Notre Dame is the first building of four stories. It's phenomenally tall. It's taller than Westminster Abbey or St. Paul's in London. And um, people must have watched it rise in the course of 60, 70 years after 1163 with no small amount of awe. Indeed. Uh, tell me about the, the subsequent changes. You talk about the sort of ire that it drew from uh, later generations. We, we also know about the that it, that it suffered great ruptures in the revolution, for instance. It suffered uh, some changes from the Huguenots. Uh, it's, it's, it's had a checkered history and, and, and long periods of being relatively unloved. 
Well, it has. And um, I tell you what, uh, Morris de Sully, the builder from 1163, wouldn't have recognised it as it was finished in 1240 because it looked to places like Reims and cobbled some of its technology so that the tall windows at the top um, are learned from early 13th century development. So the thing was developing before it was even finished. Um, the, the four storeys were turned into three simply because they could build windows so large at the top. And um, France was pretty stable in the 13th century, it must be said. Um, whereas when you get into later centuries, you mentioned the Huguenots and the influence of Calvinism and the culture of um, desecration is absolutely part of that. Um, the, the, the riots from the 1560s are not all quantified. We know more about the French Revolution, it must be said. But even the French Revolution in the late 18th century came 100 years after the French kings decided that this dark interior was very much old fashioned and they wanted to put marble down on the floor and they wanted to pull all of the stained glass windows out because those uh, big luminous interiors of whitewashed northern European churches painted by artists like Saint Rodin, you know, um, or that was all the rage. So the big changes came with a lot of goodwill and modernizing. Um, so by the time we get to the French Revolution, this was already a much changed building. Um, but they saw it as a, a, a temple of reason, essentially. They, sw they, they changed their minds on that. And eventually, as all revolutionary leaders do, Napoleon wanted to be king in the end. So him and Josephine were, were crowned there in, in 1804. They had their coronation. But um, what, we, what we would see at that point is a building that suffered from waves of iconoclasts who would have hacked the uh, heads off the characters on the West Front um, and everywhere else, frankly, where they survived. And it's remarkable how in the 20th century, some of that was actually recovered. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in late 1970s had an exhibition of sculpted heads which were discovered in a courtyard in Paris, having been buried, all facing Notre Dame, because someone who picked them up and revered the church figured that one day they may end up going home. Well, you know, they're in museums now. But nonetheless, we are learning more about the original shape of this church, which by the 19th century was essentially quite cavernous and devoid of much of its original detail. And that was reinvested by um, architects um, led by um, Viollet-le-Doux uh, from the 1840s. And part of the popularization was inevitably the taste for Gothic was happening in England as it was in France. The, uh, the rise of antiquarianism, the reverence for the past, the rejection of an increasingly mercantile modern age had a kind of you know, an, an, an admiration for the um, piety and artistry of the Middle Ages, the investment in culture. And so Villers-le-Doux, in attempting to put some of that back, is largely responsible for the stained glass, for the flesh that rises from the roof of, the, uh, of, of Notre Dame, and indeed for quite a lot of re-sculpting and um, the restitution of heads on the, the, the major portals. So um, yes, its its appearance in the 19th century was more medieval than it had been for several years, but it was largely the product of a kind of artifice in pretending that nothing had changed. Now, it was Villers-le-Duc's um, spire uh, flesh, as you say, that, 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 that so dramatically fell the other night, if, if you like the kind of iconic image of the fire the other night. Um, 
which cathedral do we want to see rebuilt? I suppose that's a that's a philosophical question that will be played out over over the weeks, months, years to come. I guess. Well, um, see, Villers-le-Duc uh, not only restored Notre Dame, but the Saint Chapelle, which is the chapel of the uh, French kings. Um, in the palace on the same island. So mm. you, you might see that as something of an ensemble. In fact, um, th- the king, um, Louis IX, gave one of the transept windows to um, Notre Dame, and Notre Dame has inherited the relic from the Saint-Chapelle, which is that of the crown of thorns, which was paraded through Europe to be invested in the king's chapel. Wasn't Saint-Chapelle specifically built to house the crown of thorns? It, it was. From 1238, the Saint-Chapelle rose, and it was, in a sense, structurally more miraculous than Notre Dame. And if you see the relationship between Notre Dame and Saint-Chapelle as a king supported by a bishop, but in a sense, but measured by a kind of... Um, expression of an outburst of humility you know that's the problem kings have they're always born into privilege and so they have to be a bit holier than thou and be conspicuously giving up on their luxuries by being close to god in a pious manner so just to say that that Villers-le-Duc is responsible for not just Notre Dame but an ensemble and I I, I always think that what's left of the French palace and uh, which is essentially Saint-Chapelle and Notre Dame uh, two buildings in dialogue with each other, not just in the 13th century. Um, and you look at Notre Dame and see the gallery of kings over the west doors. You can see that the bishop is holding the king in check and supporting him when needed and correcting him when he's subject to things like tyranny. Uh, you go to Saint-Chapelle, you see a king um, displaying his piety, investing basically the gross national product of France in the purchase of some uh, some brambles and putting it and building this, this glass and stone cage around it. But it's a wonderful dialogue between these two buildings. And Villers-le-Duc is ultimately responsible for the presentation of these buildings for the last 160 years. So what we've all been used to is part of a 19th century inheritance in some ways, as much as it is of a 13th century inheritance. This is a layered history. And so if you treat one building in isolation of the other and say arbitrarily, you know, what style do you want? And in today, I mean, I have to say, I think it's horrific news that already the French president's saying, let's have a competition. Architects around the world, give us a new jazzy spilet. I mean, I think that's entirely wrongheaded because the consideration of the 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 cultural ensemble, the um, structural evidence within Notre Dame, what its layered history has supported and how that might be expressed ought to precede the brief for its treatment. So um, there's there's an awful lot to consider, I think. Um, putting it back as was um, is maybe the knee-jerk reaction. That's what happened to the entire city of Warsaw, of course, to pretend that nothing happened in World War II, and that can be quite a palliative thing. Uh, Windsor, an entirely different philosophical approach, saying uh, this building has long evolved. In fact, George IV gave us a, a pretty weak and, and, and crappy um, Gothic hall, so let's have a better one in 20th, 21st century terms, or 20th century terms. Um, and um, both of those approaches are valid, but they are ultimately reasoned. And I wonder whether the immediate outpouring of financial donations to Notre Dame, which had its begging bowl out for the last 10 years and was working on a budget, I believe, of 6 million euros, which is paltry 
hmm. for a building of that size. It won't go anywhere. And now we're talking about half a billion dollars. Suddenly they can do everything. And um, that, you know, the, the, the critical path for major projects on sizable cathedrals of, mo- of many centuries of layered history Frankly, it should take about three years before you start to get going. So to launch a competition within a few days, I think, is pretty horrific and um, not ultimately going to end in a very satisfactory conclusion. So I think hopefully um, that might um, be abandoned at some point and reason might prevail. It was a temple of reason for a while. It can be again. (laughs) Jonathan, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thank you. Jonathan Foyle's books on Lincoln and Canterbury cathedrals are published by Scala. We'll be back talking to Christopher Spencer, or Cold War Steve, after this. The Kerjar dynasty that ruled Persia throughout the 19th century initiated a cultural revival which has recently grabbed the attention of the art world, with major shows at the Smithsonian and at the Louvre. The dominant figure in Kerjar history was Fath Ali Shah, who early in his 40-year reign grasped the soft power value of art to a nation shattered by a bloody civil war. To project an imposing image of his imperial might at home and abroad, Fath Ali commissioned life-size portraits of himself, one of which is offered in Bonham's Islamic and Indian art sale in London on the 30th of April. As Oliver White, head of Islamic and Indian art at Bonham, says, quote, Fath Ali Shah's reign marked the resurgence of Persian arts and culture, and these large-scale portraits of him have become some of the rarest objects in the Islamic art world. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the vorticist artist Wyndham Lewis once said that satire has a great big glaring target. If successful, it blasts a great big hole in the centre. Christopher Spencer has blown a great big hole into the pretensions of the people who promoted and are attempting to deliver Brexit, Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. He's also taken aim at Donald Trump, Kim Jong-un and various other figures in power. But he's done so in the most unlikely way, through a Twitter account called McFadden's Cold War or Cold War Steve, which acquired a cult following a couple of years ago and has since grown to attract more than 162,000 followers. Using an app on his iPhone, he collages images of world leaders and politicians into a dystopian, nostalgic world of dilapidated caravans and nicotine-stained holiday parks, putting them into the company of some of the most infamous, absurd, hubristic and unfortunate figures in British pop culture and sport of the last half-century. The one consistent presence in the images is Steve McFadden, the actor who plays the gritty-voiced walking disaster that is Phil Mitchell in EastEnders, one of Britain's longest-running soap operas. As well as a number of exhibitions, Cold War Steve has now released a book published by Thames and Hudson called The Festival of Brexit. I'm delighted that Christopher Spencer joins me on the line now. Chris, I'd like to go back to the beginning. When you first started, you called it Cold War Steve and it very much was about Steve, Steve McFadden, in sort of Cold War situations, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, that that's how it started. I was playing around with photo montages, very basic ones and i put steve mcfadden as his um eastenders character phil mitchell in a cold war scene i think one of the earliest ones was a drunken phil mitchell holding a bottle of scotch and gesticulating to a crowd and i I put him on the balcony with brezhnev 
uh, in a May Day parade at the um, in, in Moscow, and I just I thought the the incongruence of it and and just the the, the way it looked, I really liked, and I, I thought I might be onto something here, <laughs> and, um, and and carried it on in that vein really of Cold War scenes with him in it, and it did get very popular, which which was thrilling. But then after a time, I think it was one joke and it was wearing a bit thin and I was running out of Cold War photos and I started to to develop it a bit more and introduce a few new new characters, which didn't go down well with, with hardcore uh, Cold War Steve fans to begin with. Yeah, I said in the book, there was, it was like when Dylan went electric almost and they were um, demanding a return to a more stripped back, basic uh, Cold War Steve. But I, I didn't. I, I, and I just, it, it just naturally evolved really into to, to what it has eventually become. Can you say something about about why you chose Steve McFadden? Was it was it completely at random? Of sorts. I I used. Uh, I mean, the the pictures of him. I mean, he's a terrific actor um, as as film, which, but the, but him acting, um, you know, drunk or or mid crack cocaine session. Um, they just look brilliant. He sees facial expressions and everything. And I think that just added to the, the, the juxtaposition of him, um, you know, in the Oval Office with Reagan, um, for instance. It just married well. I'd used his um, image a few times before in other uh, things that I've been messing around with. And it, and it always looked, you know, the most funniest. And that's I think that's why I, I went with it in the end. One of the things that really comes through in the text in your book is that the the kind of impetus for all this is yes to amuse people and to create situations which which are absurd, but also mm. you know that there is a very profound anger underneath all this, and 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 I guess that has really flowered in as as we've seen the whole Brexit process unravel. Yeah, I, I, and that's that's exactly it. The, the the main point of, of what I do is is to amuse, um, really, but also at the same time, um, which is in the great tradition of, of satire and, and art, um, you know, it's to get people to laugh at it almost despite themselves. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the horror and, and dystopian scenes that I often use, um, but, but being able to laugh along with that almost makes it more powerful for, for me anyway. That's, that's how I think. And yes, with the uh, emergence of, of Trump and Brexit, it's um, it's fertile ground for that for my kind of humour, and that's it, it is very much and continues to be a, a, a coping mechanism for me. Um, you know, every day we hear something new that's going on with 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 um, Brexit, and I can channel my um, anxieties into. A composition that hopefully makes people laugh, but also makes people, you know, um, angry with with the the idiots that are responsible for it all. You talk about your anxiety. I mean, you've been again in the text and 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 generally, you you've spoken about your experience with mental illness and how these images, making these images, helped you out of that process. If it's not too painful, would you tell our listeners about that experience? No, not at all. Uh, it, it it did come out come about as um, as a coping mechanism. Um, I decided to, to channel my uh, anxieties into doing something um, creative and constructive, rather than just 
getting drunk and 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 ranting and and what have you. But um, it it was a I've struggled with mental health for for my whole adult life, um, one way or another. But then at the beginning of 2016, it it, it reached its its lowest um, point, and then uh, which led to a, a period in hospital and and um, suicide attempt. And coming out of, of, of hospital, it was a, a a moment where I thought I've got to, and art is something that I've always done, even though I've been working in 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 quite menial jobs for the last twenty odd years. Art was always something that um, I did and enjoyed and, and bought me um, comfort. So that's um, what I started with the, the the photo montages and collages, and then where with now, obviously Twitter, I was able to share them not really thinking anyone would, would pick up on them as such, but to have people um, just like them or retweet or comment and um, was brilliant. That instant um, reaction from someone um, was, was such a help and, and continues to be actually as, as, as it's grown beyond all <laughs> recognition in popularity. Um, it's, you know, the feedback from, from people, um, has made such a, a, a positive uh, effect for me and, and, and my recovery. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's definitely helped and it's never been better. That's great to hear. I mean, it, it definitely does feel like a community, an online community. You, is, you issue a new image pretty much daily or if not more than once daily. And, and, and then there's this outpouring of, of um, yes, amusement, but also a sense of shared frustrations, of, of shared... Uh, a shared sense of the absurdity of our current situation and and as, as you say that must be enormously gratifying it is and it is it's it's like you said it's it's um an, an online community of, of like-minded people um and we all uh, you know are aghast at the, the people that are involved in this but we're all um seeking solace almost in 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 laughing at them and another bizarre uh, Brexiteer character who you know shouldn't be anywhere near the um, uh, popular culture like Marc Francois for instance suddenly crops up being ridiculous um, but we can all share a joke uh, about it so rather than rant and swear about what a, an absurd idiot Marc Francois is and his, his beliefs and opinions are ridiculous just to have him in a picture um, <laughs> uh, mocking him somewhat visually uh people get a, a sense of um relief from that and, and that we can laugh at them and, and people pick up on it and the, the the different threads that go through each picture and returning uh subplots almost and and people get have favorite characters and scenarios and and um Particularly, Scylla Black is is the main one for that. <laughs> Whether I like it or not, she has to to feature somewhere in there. Um, but it's I can see that that, that people enjoy finding uh, the, the different things, or then a character will come back that I haven't used for a while, uh, like Danny Dyer and, and Cameron. They'll be like, "Oh yeah, D- Danny Dyer's back," or something. <laughs> and it's, um, and it's, it's just great fun. I'd like to talk a bit about the settings that you find because I was really intrigued to read in the acknowledgements of the book that you actually have have borrowed images, as it were, from Martin Parr, who obviously is a, another great sort of, uh, you could argue, an, another great satirical eye. Can you tell me about your relationship with Martin? Um, 
Well, I've, I've been a, a huge admirer of his work, obviously, for, for, for years and years. Um, and then when I was sourcing uh, background pictures, um, obviously, I'd, I'd come across some of, of Mike Timbar's brilliant work, especially the um, last resort uh, pictures of, of New Brighton in uh, Merseyside in early 80s. And they just... I just thought that, that they lent themselves so well to to what I was doing. So I used one of them without asking him, I should hasten to add. Um, I did my picture and, and, and shared it and posted it. And then he actually got in touch with me via uh, Instagram, I think it was. I saw Martin Parr direct message and I, my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, please don't let me say I've annoyed Martin Parr, my hero. <laughs> He's demanding it. Um so I opened it and, and sort of looked and thought, oh, no, no, no. And he just said, absolutely brilliant. Can I have a copy of it? And I was like, wow, <laughs> thank you. Um, and I said, of course you can. Um, but whilst I've got you, I was wondering if, uh, you know, I've got a book potentially coming out. I was wondering how I would go about uh, getting permission to, to use some of your your stuff. And and he was brilliant. He just said, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, use them uh, and, and do them, and uh, just send me a signed copy of the book. Which was, which, as soon as when he said that, I thought, like, oh, wow, what a, a, a rich seam of um, backgrounds I'm going to have here. Um, so that was fantastic, and I've been in touch since. There's, there's a few potential projects that I'm, I'm going to be doing over the the year that hopefully I can get um, Martin Parr uh, involved with in, in one way or another. But it'd be, but, but yeah, I mean, that's that's to have uh, someone that I've, I've, I've admired for so many years to have contacts and that relationship is 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 um, just blows me away, actually. I'm, I'm really intrigued also by the way that you look back at popular culture, but also sort of elements, sort of nostalgic elements of British life, particularly from your childhood in the 70s and the 80s. And I'm wondering about the selection process. You know, how, how do you how do you go about seeking these things? The things just pop in your head and you think, oh, I must look for, for instance, Bungle, who's this really obscure character from a British TV programme in, in the 1970s and 80s. And, you know, odd characters the, who are particularly absurd within your your colleges come up and it's it, it, it seems very acute to me that your sensibility in terms of how you choose these figures yes people ask me you know how do i decide who who goes in who doesn't who and there's there's no formula as such it's just a, and like you said it's something or someone may pop in my head as i'm composing the piece um i'll see a, a corner or a bush or something else and, and and someone will come to mind that might look good there <laughs> um like the uh, original Bungle, for instance, who's horrific looking and, and something that scared the hell out of me when I was little. <laughs> so, well, that that that's quite a powerful thing to have something that scared me when I was little to now scare me as an adult in this scene just makes it makes the point even more <laughs> dystopian, perhaps. Talking of dystopian points, one of the enduring characteristics of the of the photo montages is is, is the character of Kim Jong Un, and in a way, I think almost the most dystopian element is that the man who we could probably objectively say is the most evil of all the characters that feature in the collages is simultaneously the most cheerful and joyful <laughs> throughout. <laughs> yeah, um, I only use 
pictures of King Byung-un where he's he's laughing or, or jolly and he's he's in my work he's very much a, a an ebullient um jokey you people get in touch and say oh, you've changed my opinion of him you know i'd like to go to the pub with him he seems a good laugh oh, you know oh, thinking, Jesus. Yeah. He's, a, he's a real good laugh <laughs> you get your shot all poisoned but um but yeah that that again it's it's just to add to that i mean he's such a um, in the in the sense of, of Gilray using these absurd characters, Kim Jong Un is is definitely up there as a, a really bizarre, grotesque creation. Um, I mean, you couldn't, you almost couldn't create or write someone like you know down to, to the way he dresses and his hair and everything. Um, but yeah, completely evil despot. But in my pictures, he's he's he's, he's joyful and, and jolly. Um, which is just playing with the the whole thing again, really, with him. Tell me about the art historical content of the work. When I first wrote about your work, I was responding to a particular image which had some old women sitting on a bench and behind them, Danny Dyer was sort of jumping out at uh, David Cameron in a scene which looked very much like a Renaissance picture of the Annunciation. And I'm just wondering, you know, you've since made a very direct reference to Bruegel, for instance, and the Hunters in the Snow. Do, do art historical references crop up regularly? Yes. Um, oft, quite more than often than not, they're not a, a conscious um, decision. It's just the way a, a picture might be forming and I'll get a feel of you know I don't intentionally set out to make one that looks uh renaissance period or um I mean there's exceptions I've done um the ship of fools copy which I renamed ship of twats uh, and I found a, a, a really good rusty abandoned boat um, and then copied it, uh, tried to mimic it as best I could with characters in each place where, where he'd put them. Um, and also um, Bruegel's um, Hunters in the Snow, which is one of my favourite paintings of all time, That actually. So I scoured to try and find a, a suitable background and um, and put them in there. His was uh, Hunters in the Snow and mine was Cunts in the Snow. <laughs> And obviously, all the <laughs> all the characters uh, that I've used are, um, you know, people that I think have, have, have torn this country apart and, and made it a, a particularly unpleasant place. Um, but things like been people say it's, um, you know, one of them may be Renaissance-like, and and that's, you know, like I've said, I don't intentionally set out sometimes to do it but i can see as they're they're coming together with different people that that they do take on that that scene especially um some of the the, the indoor house of commonsy type ones as well um the positioning of certain um characters in certain positions gives them that renaissance feel to them but the bosch is probably the the biggest influence of, of sorts especially in my, my grander pieces where they could take days to make because there's that many different things in, and I try and get the different subplots in. And, and almost if you, you cut the piece into a triptych, almost if you, you kind of cut it down, made three sections of it. And also the, the some of the um, symbolism and, and, and imagery and nightmarish kind of visions in them. You started off making these images on uh... Uh, on an iPhone, am I right? 
in thinking that? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And 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 in a way, there's that sort of um, deliberate crudeness about them. And I know that sort of, sort of professional photoshoppers have got in touch with you and tried to tell you that you're you haven't got the photoshopping right. But that's not what it's about, is it? No, absolutely. And I think most of the the pictures in the book, um, I'd say about ninety odd percent of the ones in the book were made on my uh, iPhone five. So, so it's not even a particularly big iPhone, and that's because and and it was to, you know, I've, I did them on the bus into work, um, you know, when I can snatch bits of time here and there. So they're very quite spontaneous, and and I don't, and I have now, now I've sold a, a print or two. I did invest in an i iPad Pro, um, but I still do the rough starts on the phone, and then. I mean, the iPad Pro enables me to to get a much, you know, I can zoom in and get get more detail into it. But even then, I I, I don't want to look real. I want to maintain that that crudeness or, or DIY ethic to it. And it and it because of course that adds to the incongruity of it. And um, you know, a, a, a Bosch painting, for instance, doesn't look real. It's it's intentionally meant to not look real. But it's, it, it, I think it adds, if I suddenly started, went out and bought a really expensive computer and started doing um, exquisite photoshops, I think that would just, uh, that really would lose me uh, followers, I think, and it, would, and it wouldn't feel right. And the, the, the time it would take to do it like that, they would lose their, their, their spontaneity because often it is very much getting into, um, the zone almost of a, of a piece and I'm, I'm going through it and pulling characters out and putting them in and it's 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 very fluid as, as I'm doing it and I don't think you could, I could do that if it was if it was really planned out in um, a photoshop. I was wondering what um, what format you feel is best for the images because obviously now you're making images which go in books you're printing you're you're selling prints um, and you've had exhibitions but still for me I'd say that like the the pure Cold War Steve experience is that online experience where you can zoom you can use your fingers to expand the image and go right up close it, it, do you see that as a sort of as the purest uh, form of of your images or are you making different images for different formats for instance? No, I think, I mean, this is where it, you know, Twitter was was my canvas. That's where it started, and then it very much is the the the, the soul of, of of what I do. Um, you know, people can are opening it and sitting wherever they are, and they're able to to zoom in on on certain sections, and and that's the the, the joy of it. Um, prints. The prints that I've sold, you know, they're a good size, so there's and they're they're very you know high quality prints, so there's no need to to zoom in as, as such. Um, but I think the online um, social media platform is is where it started and where it, it it is at its best almost. But I mean, that's not to say um, I don't enjoy having the book because that's that's fantastic and. Thames and Hudson did a, a a brilliant job with it. Um, people say they've, you know, they they don't, they can't obviously zoom in and out on a book, but they they do use magnifying glasses and things. So um, there's there's ways around it, but I think it's um, you know a digital instant format that gets it. But um, books and prints, it's and and to have an when I've I've done a couple of exhibitions, 
and when the first exhibition at the, the social in London when I walked in and I saw these these pictures enlarged that I'd only ever seen on my phone and most of which I'd forgotten I'd done even um was just incredible um I, I was just agog and because they couldn't decide which ones we were going to put up on the walls um so I said look I'll just send all of them you you do what you want and and they literally stuck all of them <laughs> so there's um you know there's no order to it or anything and that and that again added to the the whole um, ethos of it really but to see them um bigger than i'd ever seen them before i thought it just blew me away i thought that was fantastic so um i don't want to be con- constrained to just doing them um for for twitter and, and things like that in your text you you mentioned that uh some people have accused you of bad taste because you were using images of Nigel Farage after he'd been injured in a helicopter accident would you would you tell us why you think it's appropriate to use that image yeah, and it just amazed me people got in touch to say that's very poor taste uh, you know he could have died in that plane crash but my response is was is and and will be that he himself from and what he represents and what he's doing um, and what he has done is he's, he's, he's far more bad taste than me putting a picture of him um, bloodied and, and lying in a bin talking about bad taste you know, he is you know, the epitome of uh, bad taste and so the, the, the people that moan about the post-crash Farage I, I, I just gently remind them that there's nothing that I could do with that image would be anywhere near as as, as damaging um, as what he does and says in real life. Amen to that. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. That's quite all right. You're, you're more than welcome. It's lovely to chat. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Cold War underscore Steve. And the Festival of Brexit is out now through Thames and Hudson and priced at twelve ninety five in the UK. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe if you haven't already done so. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and the Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. If you'd like to read more from the Art Newspaper, then why not subscribe to our daily newsletter so that you won't miss out on any of the latest developments in the art world. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David also does the editing. Thanks to Jonathan and Chris, and thanks to you for listening. Enjoy the Easter weekend, and we'll see you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.